0: Dr. Elizabeth Berman. Uh, she is a licensed psychologist in Wilmington, Delaware with extensive experience in the field of psychology. She has great insights with regards to positive psychology, uh, the way energy moves from the system, in, in addition to the way self-development, self-mastery, further inner development can happen. She can teach great meditations. There's a lot of background regarding her which will be available in detail on the Angelman website. So, with that brief background, I would just start today's exploration with Dr. Berman with the following question. Dr. Berman, why is psychology interesting to you? You're a licensed psychologist. You've been in the field for so many years with so much education, so many people you have seen over the years, and you are also a student of the human condition. Why is psychology of interest to you, and what has it given you?
1: Psychology is of interest to me for so many different reasons, and I think over the years what's happened for me is I've understood my personal meaning for the word psychology has expanded and expanded and expanded to include input from so many different domains with the advent of Uh, advances in technology now, what's going on in brain science, what's going on in the imaging world, all of these things are providing wonderful information to help psychology include the whole person. And so probably a definition of the whole human being is as elusive in some ways as what is psychology. But to get back to the original question, why am I interested in it? From the time I was a very little girl, I understood, I was so interested in people and like most children, I was a pretty good observer. And I took in so many different ways that people were with themselves and with each other. And as I got older, I understood that psychology supposedly was the field that looked into that to help me understand and integrate what I was observing about the people around me. The fact that uh, my childhood was spent With uh, a mother and a father who provided uh, a beautiful home for four children in many different places because my dad uh, was career military. And so, for the entire time that I lived at home, we were moving from one place to another. So, I was given this amazing experience to live in briefly become part of, mostly as the new person, um, communities all over the United States and eventually the world, and live in those communities for long enough times to actually begin to see and perhaps even understand, but certainly to integrate information about how different areas of the country, different people's backgrounds, created a different way of seeing the world. And that's what interested me so much in psychology. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so, so psychology, if you look up a definition of it, the very basic definition, it is a study of the mind and behavior. Uh, and it's a very simple way of thinking about it. So it's a study of that. How have you been a student of the human mind, human behavior, human condition? How would you present yourself that way? How would you express that?
1: Well, I think in one way I've answered the behavior part that I just was very interested in people and what they said and what they did and how they said and did things because of my experience of living in different places, going to different schools, I was able to see that different parts of the country do things in a different way. Uh, Something as simple as celebrating the 4th of July, celebrated in one way, perhaps in Texas and another way in Vermont. Um, And the cultural backgrounds of the people within the communities also added their unique flavor and influence. So this observation, I don't know that when I was younger, I studied human behavior, but I certainly observed it and tried to integrate it in a way that made sense to me. Um, In terms of the study of the human mind, that's very interesting because over time, over the years I've been in this field, um, the the mind is very elusive in terms of the definition of the mind. And more and more now we're understanding that nervous impulses, neural connections in the brain are a biological view of where thinking is going on and that the mind is a more abstract understanding of how people put those neural networks into a framework of thinking that makes sense to them. So that's fascinating. And I think for me, one of the greatest gifts in the more recent years within the field of psychology is the discovery through technology and imaging and and the research into the brain that this term we call neural plasticity which is loosely defined as the ability to reprogram your own brain the ability to use your behavior in a conscious way use your thinking processes in a with a level of awareness that you make conscious choices to behave in different ways. And that that in fact creates new neural networks in your brain and in fact gives you a different way of being in the world.
0: I see, I see. So that's a wonderful overview. Do you feel uh, that humanity is very much Common or quite similar, that each human being is quite similar or maybe even identical at the very core. And then as we go externally with regards to the different cultures, different traditions, different mindsets, there's so much diversity. So would you be able to express your viewpoint on the underlying unity, if you feel there is such, amidst the nearly endless diversity? But what does psychology say about this and what do you say about this?
1: Well, I can tell you what I say about it and different psychologists will probably have a very different take on it but i think human being male female um, whatever the body form or shape is that there's a communality that there's something that differentiates humans from all the rest of the life forms on this planet and for me that significant difference is a brain that has the ability to allow human, a human, to reflect on themselves. And that's such a powerful thing. And we all share that. It was interesting yesterday, I was reading something about the development of empathy and compassion in children. And um, it was saying something to the effect that uh, we need mirror neurons to have empathy for the other. And the mirror neurons are those, those neurons in the brain that allow us to see something, to see another being, and to the mirror neurons respond to that experience of seeing someone else go through something an emotional experience and feel within our own bodies what it's like for that other human being to be feeling that perhaps um, as a little kid well to begin with that develops by age two so pretty much universally all two-year-old children's act Pretty altruistically, they see somebody that's sad or unhappy or having difficulty with something. And little kids from two, three, four years on just automatically kind of go over, give or do something to this other child with no really... um, personal gain for the little child who's doing it. So they talk about the mirror neurons having developed by age two and children universally acting in an altruistic, compassionate way. And by, when they follow this up in terms of culturally all around the world, Kids, uh, I don't know whether I have the statistics here, but something like 90-some percent of children. Okay, no, here it is, 1975 study. A 100% of the elementary school-age children behaved in an altruistically manner in Kenya. 8% of children in that same age range behave altruistically or compassionately. So you can see the massive, massive influence that culture and the people in our environment who actually transmit and teach us the culture that they believe in and that they support. So culture has a huge, huge effect on how we develop the potential within us that's pretty similar, or perhaps for the most part, the same for all human beings, no matter where they're born, no matter how they're born in terms of, is there something wrong with them physically? Is there, are there some challenges, you know, from birth on, but that We can move from compassion, from caring, from altruistic, which seems to be uh, programmed on a genetic level because it's showing up at two years of age, similarly in all children all around the globe. And then we take a study like this study done done in 1975 comparing the uh, six different cultures around the world And I just gave you the example of the two extremes. In Kenya, 100% of the kids in elementary school were behaving in an altruistic, compassionate way. 8% of the children sampled in the United States were behaving that way.
0: I see, so that's a very nice exposition. Yeah, uh, in hearing you talk about culture, different traditions, it seems like that humanity has been going through thousands of years of development of maybe what what could be called the human mind as one mind that has many different aspects could you say something about this i know that others have talked about similar ideas what, are, what is your perspective on it
1: so clarify for me what the question is just say, repeat the question for me so
0: o- over thousands of years different traditions different viewpoints different cultures different languages different beliefs have come into the human framework uh, or or they have been developed by human beings. Would you say that such a development is happening in a a very universal manner that that there is the development of the mind itself, that the human mind is developed or conditioned, certainly there's a conditioning process but there's a development also. Uh, And you can look at that in terms of language development, religious development, uh, different cultural norms and traditions, morality development. All of that. So the, the broader question is about the development of a of a uh, human mind that is that is all interconnected mind. Is there like an interconnected mind that that we're all part of?
1: My studies and my experience with this enormous and beautiful question. It's an alluring question. It draws us in and asks us to think about ways that perhaps aren't um, asked of us so often. And this sense of oneness, connectedness, um, the terms that we've heard perhaps out of philosophy, perhaps out of spiritual traditions are becoming more and more in what we call the West operationalized and kind of a loose definition of that is defined by certain different kinds of behaviors which then can be measured under quote unquote scientific conditions and therefore either um, validated in some way or In science you never prove anything you only have a preponderance of disproving instances in your research and then you can build a theory around that however this notion of how are we connected not despite but even through and with our differences so Some people are multilingual, some people are bilingual, different languages. I I mean, we call, we have snow in the English language. I've been told that people who live in um, Alaska have something like 93 different definitions, or not definitions, words for snow, because of their relationship to snow, they interact with it in ways that give them all of those fine nuanced discernments about what kind of snow is this. So this ability to be connected to what we might call a universal mind, perhaps that's what consciousness is. Certainly people like Freud tried to delineate what we're aware of is not the totality of our consciousness. That requires more and more training of the mind, discipline of the mind, so you can be aware of this stream of subconscious, unconscious chatter that's going on in the background. Um, Jung talked about the universal unconscious, the collective unconscious, in which all human beings at a certain time and a certain place in, in history on earth would share this collective consciousness, did a great deal of work on something he called archetypes, which were s- symbols or images that they found to be universal and showing up in every culture, despite the time, the writings, or the recording of those particular archetypes occurred, despite the language, despite the place. So yes, and this is all rich, rich fodder perhaps for the inquisitive mind who wants to learn more about this and perhaps then makes the decision that, wow, my mind has so much more capability than I was aware of and how do I use, do I, one, do I want to use those additional capabilities? How do I develop them? What, what kinds of training can I give my own mind to be able to think more clearly, more accurately, to be able to access memory and information and begin to integrate it so that my knowledge base, the knowledge base that's accessible to me, is continually building until our last breath we can be creating new neural networks in our brain that gives us more and more access to the full brain that we have, to the full potential in our brain
0: I see, so that's a a wonderful explanation would you say that the concept of self-mastery this is one of the angel Wings' key ideas to promote this is what you're talking about with regards to the possibility of the brain awakening completely, or the brain's capacity to reach its full potential. Uh, Now, I asked this question in relation to the previous question about the way humanity has been developing over so many years. In so many ways, we can say there's a lot of constructive development and there's destructive development. We've also been the cause of our own destruction in so many ways, and we've also been the cause of our own upliftment in so many ways. What is your perspective on this destructive ability, constructive ability? And then how does that relate to the development of the, of the synapses within the brain? So it's kind of an integrated question there.
1: Well, <clears throat> one of the ways that I look at this is what I read, the information I've been given that I accept as factual, Um, are integrated into an understanding that the human being, the species of humanity, has evolved in many different ways. And there are many, many different um, sources over the history of mankind that have pointed to a development of consciousness. And there are many people now who are saying, That that's where the human species is, that we don't, at this point, need to really focus on physicality. But to be able to use all of the brain power that we have in such a way that our consciousness evolves, our awakened awareness of what's going on and what it means, And I think that part of that awakened awareness is this growing body of information, should we choose to pay attention to it, that pretty much everything's connected. Not only are humans connected through a consciousness or the ability to communicate with each other, even if the language is somewhat of a barrier, that we're connected to everything. And I think that this evolution in brain power, which is different than consciousness, has given us so many tools that allow us to be masters over many natural obstacles. You know, people build dams to try and put water in places that naturally water didn't occur. We've um, stripped mine, at least in the United States, many areas of this country. The, we've created global warming through using these tools for uh, humans, um, human purposes with not so much recognition that if I want something here, it means something else, somebody else doesn't get it. So I think California is an example that they've been diverting water out of certain parts of California to LA to feed the very thirsty population in LA and now those other parts of California are suffering and as climate changes, there's not enough water to grow the crops to feed the farmers uh, land and crops to grow so we all know about global warming we all know that something has to happen in terms of this expansion of our awareness of what i do in some way affects everybody and everything else i think that's what the laws about curbing pollution are about that's what the outcry Worldwide, from some people are saying we can't continue to live the way we're living because we're killing off life on the planet. So, in some ways, I've probably wandered beyond the question, but this is a way of my organizing everything that I'm being told in terms of what's going on around the planet by people who have dedicated their lives to studying it, that it really does keep coming back to this notion that everything's connected. And for me, I go back to the place of everything is energy. Everything is energy in more or less contracted form. So my physicality is a more dense form of energy. My biology is a little bit less dense, but certainly my thoughts are even less dense. They're mental energy instead of physical energy. My emotions are emotional energy. You know, the pain or feelings in my body is biochemical and nervous energy that gives information to my brain and says, I've just burned my hand on a hot stove. So in that sense of those are all different forms of energy within me, when I look out my window and I see these yellow pansies blooming, I begin to understand that's another form of energy. And on a very, very simple way, if I don't continue to water those pansies in in the window box, they're gonna shrivel up and die. So in some ways, those pansies' life experience depends on my relationship with them what I think about them, what I'm willing to do to preserve their life um, for the sake of the beauty that they're, they're exhibiting.
0: So uh, Dr. Berman, you have talked about many things just right now, you of course talk a lot about energy. But just a general question about that and we'll get to some more specifics. What is the field of psychology's take on energy? mental energy, physical energy, neurological energy. Psychology certainly talks about conditioning and reinforcement and things like that, you know, uh, as, as well as um, analysis of the mind through psychotherapy, those areas are there. There's also quite a bit of experimental uh, approach to uh, psychology, but what is what is the current understanding in psychology regarding energy? And what do you mean by energy also? You talked about it before, but in terms of the field of psychology, where are we now with energy in
1: that? It's a very interesting question. I recently um, became aware of a debate, a debate that's going on within the field of psychology because over um, a number of years, but certainly more recent years, There's um, a field of psychology called energy psychology, which focuses on energy as an essential part of the human beings. And it can focus on, say, the acupuncture or acupressure meridians that um, Asian medicine has so elegantly uh, and comprehensively detailed and how as a psychologist you can work with those meridians that f- carry energy through the body to different organs and how it's all interrelated there are other there are other say bodies of information that talk about energy systems in terms of the nadis and this flow of energy throughout the body in these many, many, many channels. The closest I came to it in my education, which was way before energy psychology, my formal education, was way before energy psychology was even a term in the psychological language, was... um, I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought.
0: <laughs> well, actually, uh, maybe I can just uh, expand upon the question very quickly that within the field of psychology, there has been this recent development of energy uh, psychology. Even in the medical sciences, energy medicine, there's more discussion about energy overall. Is energy, I'll put the question this way, is energy neutral? Is it just raw that takes? All okay. Then how does that relate to what psychologists are saying about
1: them? Okay, thank you for helping me get back on track. Um, is energy neutral? Is is energy raw? Right. So this is a metaphysical question. It's a philosophical question. It's a psychological question. It's a scientific question. It's all all different domains of study have their own language and the language is reflected in the paradigms with which they choose to study energy. So for me when I use the term energy I use it as the something had to start somewhere right so energy is the most basic form of existence. I don't know how to get it any more specific than that. And as such, pure energy is neutral and and perhaps all forms of energy are neutral. So instead of labeling good and bad, which changes from culture to culture, time to time, person to person. You know, there's an old saying, somebody's terrorist is somebody else's freedom fighter. Um, And that's kind of jolting to try and really understand what that means, that this different perspective can look at the same outward expression of energy, i.e. somebody's behavior, and have such totally differing views of it. So instead of the more um, value-laden adjectives or descriptors of energy, it's always been helpful to me to understand that energy as the most basic form of existence, although energy can be formless in its pure, pure state, as it manifests in either behavior, in thought, in, in physical form, it's either more contracted or a continuum to more expansive. So say, let's just take an emotion. We can say a contracted emotion would be fear or anger. And you, can, you know when you think of anger, you can almost feel your body kind of tighten up a little bit when you think about being angry or if you think about being fearful, to the other end of the energy continuum being expansive in the way that a young child is so delighted by a beloved grandmother walking through the front door that they haven't seen for a while. Or you see in the exuberance of a puppy going outside and running around for the sheer joy of running so to begin to look at energy in less judgmental terms helps us to begin to work with energy in a way to see what is this particular energy experience communicating to me without the blocks of morality and and and, and judgment which changes from time to time, culture to culture.
0: So that's very interesting. You you mentioned time and again about energy contraction, energy expansion. And you also just mentioned about internal blocks. Um, When energy contracts, what are some of the causes of this contraction? What are some of the causes of expansion? Maybe we can try to understand the expansion and contraction process by looking at the causes of it. And then if you can give some examples of what that might look like.
1: Well, first of all, I wanna talk a little bit about the processes, perhaps is the best way to say it. So let's just think in in very um, personal terms. If I think about Something, we, I'm just going to call it a trigger. Something happens. Somebody says something to me. And I all of a sudden feel negative. I feel judged. I feel all kinds of things that are contracted experiences. Uh, an example would be the dog's harness. Um, which is very important for walking the dog safely, just disappeared, right? I was the last one with the dog and the harness, and I dragged him upstairs. I didn't drag him. Carried him upstairs to give him a bath because he was totally muddy because we were out in the rain and mud. Everything else is still, we can find everything else. We have no idea where the harness went. So somebody said, wow, I guess that was not very responsible of you and instead of just thinking about what that remark had to me I felt myself well I was aware of my body getting a little bit tighter my um I remember the expression on my face when I looked up and said well I don't think I was irresponsible I think I was very responsible doing other things and I could just feel all of that tension in my body. So the trigger from the outside world triggered a thought process and then a behavior process of the words that I said about it. Now, in a moment, I, a moment later, I could feel that I don't want to feel this way. I, you know, I personally don't care what that person thinks, whether I'm responsible or not responsible. I know how I feel about the event which is, I have no idea where this thing is, and I have no idea how it disappeared, but I don't feel guilty about it. And in being able then to just recognize, wow, I'm feeling defensive. Wow, I'm feeling like I want to push back against this person in some way. And I realized, who cares? And then I consciously took a breath slowed my breath down and literally experienced my body start to relax as my breath my breath automatically slowed as i became aware of it and focused on it it flipped me out of the sympathetic nervous system mode into the parasympathetic mode. And my body, literally the biochemistry of my body changed. The physicality of my body changed into the fact that my muscles were relaxing, my heartbeat slowed. So there are many ways that we can become aware of what's going on. In this being that we call us, that includes, yes, our physical body, but also our mental body or activity, our emotional energies or feelings or experiences. As we become aware of them, we have an ability to choose what we're going to do next with that experience. And that's what I call self-mastery because over time we quickly learn what supports our goals in life and what does not support our goals in life. And a definition of self-mastery is to be able to be conscious enough and have enough mental discipline or discipline in our mind that instead of just responding to anything that the mind randomly throws out, because that's what the mind does, it thinks. And, or we can be able to be aware and make a choice. Does this serve what I want to accomplish today? No, okay, where am I gonna put my attention? So this ability to focus our attention in ways that will initiate responses in our body that help us create the world we want to live in, instead of us being victims of all of this random mental energy that's going on on a subliminal level.
0: I see, so yes, as you're talking about self-mastery, it seems that there is also great importance placed in balance, the need for balance. Uh, even Piaget used the uh, term equilibration, uh, which is the process by which an individual uses assimilation and accommodation to restore or maintain psychological equilibrium, you know, uh, which is a cognitive state devoid of conflicting schemas. So That's more technical definition there But in a more general sense, there is this need for balance, for equilibrium. Uh, And we want that. Most of humanity would want to be balanced. I think if we were to ask the average person, do you want to be balanced in life? They will say yes, we want to be balanced. What is your perspective on the need for balance? And how does that relate to what you were just talking about, about expansion and contraction and self-mastery? You know, that if I want to get balanced, How is self-mastery and energy, how are they connected to this concept of being balanced?
1: Well, I would say um, balance is a good word. I prefer equilibrium or equanimity because balance occurs in so many different domains and perhaps true balance or, or perhaps true economy equ- excuse me equanimity if I want to be equanimous in the way I think the way I move the way I plan and act in my life um, I it requires awareness of a lot of different aspects of myself and it requires self-discipline to maintain that level of awareness, moving it into a skillful awareness in which we aren't frightened by the energies of strong emotions or strong thoughts, but we can look at them non-judgmentally and say, okay, what does this have to teach me? And I would say that biologically even, I, I would say that the need for equilibrium is, is down into our cells. It's probably into the subatomic particles, but I, I just don't have the language or the background to talk about it on that level. But think about breath we this human form is not going to be animated with the life force once my breath or my ability to breathe leaves this this body and you think about that as we breathe in this natural we don't have to think about breathing but as we breathe in you can feel this physical expansion in the body as the diaphragm drops as The lungs expand, the ribs open up, there's this huge expansion. And the oxygen carried in that blood, then, or or in that breath, fills our bloodstream to expand the life force, to feed the life force in each of the cells of our body. And then as we exhale again naturally, we don't have to think about, oh, now I need to exhale you see this level of contraction. The body moves back to a more contracted state. And that's immediately followed. The body draws this breath in so it can expand again. And then it releases the breath and it contracts down again. So this in and out, this expansion and contraction, is it's it's essential. Um, I don't have, you know, a plant science background where I could take, but I'm wondering if maybe photosynthesis is an example of what happens as a plant takes in sunlight and somehow or another transforms it into chlorophyll and the leaves turn green and grow and um, in many cases feed us as salad or whatever, whatever else, whether it's an edible thing or not. So this notion of expansion and contraction in a balanced way, I think is programmed into our very physicality. It's certainly a natural response that we have in terms of breath that um, we don't even have to think about. So it's there for me as a way to understand yes seeking balance is actually vital a vital component of vibrant health and when i talk about self-mastery and mastery in the world what i'm talking about is not just surviving it's actually thriving so that means a healthy mind a healthy body um, always growing always expanding It seems to me that that's what nature tells us. The life force wants to expand, 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 and that can be in terms of my awareness, in terms of the information I have, in terms of the experiences I have, that life itself in some way is this process of expansion. And then there's this i don't know whether uh, contraction but maybe it's maybe uh, another way of saying that is consolidation consolidation of the energy the um information right that then with the in-breath again is expanded even more
0: okay so just to follow up on that uh, thank you for that very nice explanation when we use the word equilibrium equilibrium is generally defined as a state of physical or mental balance or stability so it's a state that one can be in it's a balanced state physical or mental balance or stability with regards to things like posture physiological process psychological adjustment all of that is involved in the balancing process Could you elaborate on the possibility of remaining in a steady state of balance? What does that mean? Is there even such a possibility?
1: Well, this is a personal understanding of the word state, right, that that for me it can, if I'm mentally lazy, it can mean a static state of happiness, of equilibrium, of whatever we want to call about it. But equilibrium in the way I understand it and am using it is there's this, just the breath is such a classic example. There's this constant flow of in and out and in and out. And sometimes perhaps if there's more physical exertion um, happening, I'm running up a hill. My body <gasps> grasps big, big, big gulps of air to oxygenate my muscles so I can keep going. And then naturally pushes it out, pulling it back in in big gulps. So, and then perhaps at the top of the hill, there's this calming down, and the breath then moves in a way to try and balance the oxygenation in my blood and all my organs and glands in a way that's different, slower perhaps, and that's going to affect everything else in my body. So this equilibrium is the understanding that all of me is connected to all the other parts of me. Not only are my cells all connected in in what we could anthropomorphize, morphically say is a consciousness of each other, a consciousness of the life force and wanting to extend it. Even though cells die off, they give birth to the new cell and transfer the energy that they've gained during their lifetime to the new cell. So there's this continu- continually, continuous support of the body function. Okay. So this, the, it, it, it's, it's a, confluence and an expanded awareness of many, many, many processes going on within the human being and being aware of each other and compensating what they're doing to accommodate what the other processes are doing. So in some ways, it's, it's an expansion of consciousness, equilibrium, uh, being able to maintain a state of interested observation as opposed to judgment experience.
0: Uh-huh, so that's very interesting. Interested observation, the expansion of consciousness, all these ideas that you're presenting are quite profound in a very practical way day-to-day experience, you know, a person wakes up in the morning, just as an example. What are they to do to awaken this expansion, to recognize their energy flow, to also make a decision to be balanced? Could you give some direction on the practicality of what you are teaching them? Yes,
1: Yes. Um, that's a great question. And there's a deceptively simple answer and that is be embodied and what I mean by that is when you wake up and you move from the sleep related consciousness into the fully awakened related consciousness you have the ability to Expand that consciousness of being awake, having thoughts, to what's going on in my body. Because so much of the time, many of us live kind of up here. And, and what I'm doing is putting my hand kind of a little above my head and to the right of it. And that's where a lot of people will tell you they feel like they are when they're in their thoughts. And so many of us are in our thoughts and thoughts are always about what happens in the, what happened in the past, what's going to happen in the future. So we're missing the actual experience of right here, right now, in this moment, can I be present? In my awareness that this is a moment and I have the ability to actually experience it. And the way we can ground that experience is through our body. Our bodies are these amazing, amazing gifts. There are vehicles for this lifetime to carry us from one place to another. And to be able to use the mind, the awareness to actually be present in the body grounds us in the actual moment so that we are present to what's actually happening in the moment. So the first step in this is to, one, actually want to be in your body, actually want to know what's going on in your body. And it's very simple to begin to do that. You can just basically do a body scan as you're lying in bed and ask yourself the question, what do the soles of my feet feel like in this moment? And pretty much the wisdom of the body, the wisdom of the mind and the brain actually give you some experience of what's going on in the soles of your feet. And then you move to your toes and the tops of your feet and the lower part of your legs. And you can move up through your entire body with the intention to pay attention to these different body parts and see what's going on there. Our bodies communicate to us all the time. Am I present to that communication? An awful lot of the time, I am not. Right? How many times have I been sitting at a computer working at something and all of a sudden, I just am become aware of this terrible pain across my shoulders because I've been hunching forward either on the keyboard or moving towards the screen in a way that's not helpful or healthy for my body. And it's been going on for hours before I finally pay attention to what my body's telling me. Sit up straight or stand up, you know, get some blood flowing through your body because that's what it needs to stay healthy. So this intention to become aware of the body, to allow ourselves to be in our body and respond to what our body is telling us, I'm hungry, I feel like I need to move my legs, I you know, have to empty my bladder. It would be really nice to be able to be quote unquote friends with our bodies We have to be in a communication with our bodies, in the immediacy of the presence, not the fear of what might happen in the future or what happened in the past because we can't change the past and no matter how much we plan, we're never in the future. We literally are always in the present. Are we aware of it? Are we using our mind To be in the present and make changes that we want to see in ourselves in the world. So, beautiful question, simple thing. The more you start doing a simple little body scan um, in the morning, perhaps before you even get out of bed, the more information you and your body are going to start becoming really, really aware and aligned and perhaps balanced in a way that you can't be if you're not aware of your body. First step, be embodied.
0: Right, so when you let's say that you be aware of the body, because, you know, we can see this, we can see our body, but the awareness of the body is apparently a very big um, step for many people. It's just not aware of how we're standing at times or what we're how we're moving the body, how much we're sitting. Um, Can you elaborate a bit further on how a person can become much more aware in 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 a 24-hour cycle? Of course, now sleep time is difficult, but when we're awake, how can we really be much more aware of what we are doing with our body?
1: So the very first thing is to want to be aware. So that's intention, right? I recognize I want to be more aware of my body because this is a massive step forward in moving into vibrant health with whatever body we have in the moment. Um, So we begin that journey of lending our consciousness to healing our body and or keeping it healthy and vibrant. So our intention to be embodied And then to have cues to remind you to bring your attention into your body. So um, you can develop a habit if you have supports to remind yourself before you get out of bed in the morning to discipline yourself to check out the soles of your feet, check out your toes, your feet, your calves, your shins, you know, and just move up the body. Um, perhaps if you missed it while you were in bed, you have a little post-it note on the bathroom mirror that reminds you, do a body scan. Um, you may have set up some reminder on your uh, cell phone for uh, different alerts during the day that ping or ding or ring. And when you look at your phone, it says, take three minutes to do a body scan. Um, So you begin to develop a habit, a pattern. It takes about 40 days to do something consistently before your mind starts just reminding you automatically that you can do it. And there so, are many apps out there on our, to put on our phones and computers to help remind us. Apps don't work unless you have the intention to create something and you recognize the app as an aid and a support in that creation.
0: So are you saying that on a day-to-day level, on a daily level, day-to-day activity, we can make small changes that gradually will take us to a level of self-mastery. Is that what you're saying? Something like
1: that? Absolutely. Absolutely. We were born with the potential to have self-mastery. You know, many traditions, many cultures, ancient as well as more modern, have been saying this in less technical terms because the the imaging technology wasn't available until now. But, but, but what the imaging is doing is just saying, oh, wow, what the, that ancient culture said about inside and breath turns out to be true. <laughs> so, so that's this wonderful evolution of our minds to create this technology but now can we evolve our consciousness to use the technology to bring the planet into a level of survival and then thriving so that it supports life on the planet for who knows how long into the future. My great, great, great grandchildren hopefully will have a beautiful, vibrant planet that they live on.
0: Okay, just a final question for today's, Uh, exploration. When we use the word suffering, it's a very big word, and humanity suffers in countless ways, and has suffered, and continues to suffer. Could you elaborate on your perspective on what is suffering? And then maybe next time we can pick up on how to reduce suffering, which which is what we've been talking about the whole time, without using that word. But what what does that word mean to you? What does the word suffering mean to you?
1: So for me suffering, so I have to take one step back to begin with. Um, Our language, and I think all language that humans have engaged in, requires a delineation. So, So suffering, the experience of suffering exists because we have something that we call non-suffering. So the experience of happiness exists because we have something that we can relate to which is non-happiness. So what we're doing here, what I'm doing here is talking within the duality of our language, right? So somebody's definition of suffering, earlier I said something about you know, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. So perhaps one person's experience of suffering is another person's experience of liberation from something. So I experience suffering in myself. I experience what I view as suffering in others as experiencing contraction. Contraction in the physical form, contraction in the thought forms, and contracted energies in, in the thought forms, contracted energies in the body, contracted energies in the emotions. And that contraction is labeled as suffering. It, it hurts. I. I it, it's hard now to, to go further without just understanding that instead of a word that has negative values at least to me which suffering does if I can use severe contraction it helps me to be able to understand that that severe contraction exists in a level of duality only because there's a level of expansion that we say is the opposite of that. Hopefully that's helpful.
0: Okay, Dr. Elizabeth Berman, thank you very much for today's exploratory recordings. Uh, and uh, Angel Wing thanks you for your continued wisdom and we will end this recording here. So.
1: Okay.